If you brought your Bible, please open to the book of Ephesians. We are going to be in chapter 4, starting in verse 17. We are going to work our way through verse 24. If you haven't uh, downloaded the Sierra Bible Church app, you can find the uh, sermon notes there. Uh, and if you haven't downloaded it, you can text uh, seven seven, or you can text Sierra Bible NV space app to seven seven nine seven seven. You can find and download the app there, absolutely free of charge, and uh, you can grab the sermon notes from the app. Also, uh, if you have any questions about the message or about God's Word or about anything that we talk about here this morning, uh, you can email the questions into iron at sierrabible.org and we will answer them in our weekly sermon Q&A podcast. And uh, I've got a feeling, I'm, I'm putting this up here today because I've got a feeling that today is going to bring out some questions. Uh, today, I think, is going to bring out a, a number of questions of practical nature for how to walk out what we're going to be talking about this morning. I can't deal with all of the pastoral issues uh, that happen as, as a result of this text, but I can offer a three-hour-long podcast. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I can offer uh, some insight into these questions uh, if you email them in to iron at sierrabible.org. As I mentioned um, I feel like it's going to churn up some questions in us because I think that if we're taking this text seriously, uh, it's going to get real in here, as they say. Last week, we finished the section on spiritual gifts and spiritual maturity, and today, Paul takes a, a turn in, the, in his epistle to focus in on holiness, to focus in on setting apart our lives for the sake of Jesus and walking in the new life that he has given. One theologian writes about God's holiness is that God's holiness means that he is separate from sin and devoted entirely to seeking his honor. And therefore, that the process of us becoming like him and becoming holy like him is the process that God brings us through as we have received his new life in Christ and we continually put to death sin in us and we continually walk in more in the new life that God has given us in Christ. And like I mentioned... If we're taking this text seriously, it's going to churn up some things in us and help us to put off the old self and walk in newness of life. If you want today's message in a sentence, is this, is because we have new life in Christ, we shouldn't walk any longer in our old life of sin. Because we have new life in in Christ, we shouldn't walk in our old life in sin. In this passage, we, we see one clear command, one clear, unambiguous command that causes us to ask one rather convicting question. So if you brought your Bible, and if you're able, please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, 
in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we come before you asking and praying that you would be with us here over the course of these next couple of minutes to speak clearly, personally, lovingly, compassionately, to help us put off the old self, to no longer walk like people who don't know you, resistant to you and to your leading, but God, may we be sensitized to your spirit. As the kids learned that we would take your word as a light unto our path and that we would walk in the newness of the light of the gospel that we have. Heavenly Father, I pray and I ask that over the course of these next couple of minutes, you, you would help us to become holy as you are holy. We pray this in the matchless name of the Holy One, Jesus Christ. Amen. When someone's trying to get your attention, usually they try to signal to you verbally uh, that something that they are going to say is going to be important. They'll say something like, listen up, or you need to know this, or hey, I've got something important to tell you. Well, starting in verse 17, Paul says to the church, listen up. He signals a transition in the text by saying, now this I say and testify in the Lord. This is his introductory way of saying, I have something very important to tell you. Listen up to what I am about to say here. It's his way of communicating and it's his way of appealing to God's authority. Now this I say and I testify in the Lord. This is from God and you need to hear this. Listen up. After this loaded introduction, he gives one command that drives the next seven verses. Don't walk like the Gentiles. Now, he's not talking about an ethnic or political group. He's talking about the Gentiles in a spiritual category of those who have resisted God, those who have rejected God, those who aren't in a personal relationship with the God of the Bible. He's saying, don't walk like people who don't know who God is. In 1977, the, the rock band Aerosmith produced a song about two young men who are about to participate in some very sinful activity. The two young men were led into this sinful activity by a young woman who said to the young men, walk this way talk this way. 
If the Apostle Paul were to be present with the two young men in that, in that song, he would interject into that verse or into, in, into the, the song, don't do it, boys. Don't walk the way that this woman wants you to walk. Paul is saying is very clearly and emphatically to the church, don't walk, don't act, don't talk like people who don't know God who aren't in a relationship with God, who haven't had the revelation of the gospel and had their lives changed by God. Don't walk like them. Don't talk like them. Don't act like them. And then he gives nine reasons why they should not do that. He describes the life of those who are far from God, who don't have a relationship with God in nine different descriptions to clearly emphasize this is not how you are supposed to act. The first one, he says, he says, uh, the first, excuse me, the first two deal with the life of the mind. Don't walk like those who do not know God because they walk in the futility of their thinkings. They have futile minds. The the word futility here means empty and vain. It doesn't mean that people who don't know God are not intellectual, nor are they, or, or it doesn't mean that they're not smart. It means that the life without God is empty. It's devoid of eternal purpose. It's cut off from the source of life and the source of meeting. Don't walk, in other words, he's saying, don't walk as those who think that life is meaningless. The believer in Christ never, when they're in their right mind, never thinks, my life is pointless, my life is meaningless. And conversely, it doesn't say, it doesn't build on top of that. Because my life is meaningless, I can do whatever I want. I can create meaning for myself. I can create an entire life structure based upon whatever I desire because ultimately, life is meaningless. We never think that if we are in Christ. But that is exactly the dominant thought pattern of this age. There's no real eternal meaning. Create whatever meaning you please. Do as you desire. Create meaning for yourself. Paul would say that, is the futi- that comes from a futility of thinking, an emptiness of thought, and says don't follow that course of life, that pattern of action. And he clarifies that this futility of thinking comes from the darkness of our minds. The, the person who doesn't know God lives, as Katie illustrated here this morning, lives in darkness, lives in spiritual darkness. They have darkened understanding. They're spiritually blind without the eternal light to guide their path. Paul then switches from a mental from mental metaphors to a relational description, saying that they are cut off from the life of God. They're alienated from the life of God. This is a description as one of a stranger. The life of the one who does not know God is defined as as a stranger. If you were to take my wife, Andrea, and you were to drop her off in the middle of Canada, and she were to go around and say, have any of you guys seen my husband, Carl? Do you know where he is? 
they would all look at her and say, who in the world is Carl? And she could describe me like my husband. She could describe me as he, he talks really long and loud on Sunday mornings. She could give a whole host of descriptors of who I am and asking, have you guys seen him? But ultimately, the entire nation of Canada is strangers to me. They are alienated from me. They're foreigners to me. They don't know who I am. Paul is making this comparison to those to, to those who don't know God. They are complete strangers to him. Paul then links the, the alienation to God due to their ignorance. They're strangers to God through the ignorance that is in them. One New Testament scholar writes of this word, to know God means to be in a close personal relationship with him. Knowledge has to do with an obedient and grateful response of the whole person, not simply intellectual assent. Like, likewise, ignorance is a failure to be grateful and obedient. It describes someone's total stance, including emotions, will, and actions, not just someone's mental response. So Paul goes even one step farther of saying, not just those people who've never heard of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, or Jesus Christ, the Messiah, but those who, due to the ignorance that is in them, because of their darkened understanding, have said no to the revelation of who God is and refuse stubbornly to be in a personal relationship with him and refuse stubbornly to walk in a manner worthy of his calling. This ignorance that is in them, that is in them, is due to their uh, darkened understanding because of the hardness of their heart. The hardness of their heart is the biblical way of saying uh, the Gentiles were, were stubborn towards God. They're obstinately rejecting of God's truth. The hardness, the stiffness of neck, the hardness of heart, the desire to not obey nor honor. God. These descriptors of those who are not walking with God continue in verse 19. Paul says that they have become callous. Now, I'm not a huge uh, person who likes to exercise, but I do exercise quite regularly, and I like doing the bench press, and I like doing the bench press specifically. Um, A lot of people like to use gloves and, and workout gear. I just like to use my bare hands as, as I'm doing the bench press, specifically because then I get calluses, and then it makes it look like I actually work out. <laughs> but these calluses that are on my hands because I, 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 do, the, because I do the bench press has, has uh, created dead skin on top of my hand to the degree that I can poke it pretty hard and still not hurt whatsoever. My, my hands have become desensitized. They've become desensitized and calloused because I do the bench press. Paul is saying that the mind that has rejected God, the person that has walking away from God, the, the one who does, isn't in a relationship with God, has become desensitized to God. His word no longer instructs, leads, convicts, draws them near to God. They're they're just callous towards him. 
They hear his words and it's like bouncing off of dead skin. Has no instruction or value to their life. They become desensitized and callous to what God has said. They're desensitized to God because they are sensitized. They've desensitized to God because they are resensitized to their own sin. They've given themselves up. Just because they're callous to God doesn't mean they're not sensitive towards something else. They're still being led by something. They're still giving themselves over to something. They're still desiring something and walking in a certain pattern of their own lives. And Paul says, well, they've given themselves up. They've sensitized themselves to other things, not to the word of God, not to a relationship with God, but they've sensitized themselves to these two things, to sensuality. Whatever feels good, I'm going to do it. This, this appeals to my flesh. This appeals to my senses. I'm going to walk in this way. I'm sensitive to what makes me feel good, and I'm going to obey and honor these desires within my body because these are what really will make my life worth living and will make my life happy. They've given themselves up to sensuality. They're callous towards God because God perhaps puts them on a longer path towards pleasure where sensuality, man, that is instant gratification, and I am sensitized to, to that. They've given themselves up. The sensuality, whoop, never mind, not yet. They've given themselves up to sensuality, and there should be one more, but it's not there. Greedy to practice impurity, Paul says in the second thing. The other way Paul describes those who are far from God have given themselves up as being greedy to practice impurity. Uh, according to uh, Lo and Nita's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, greedy means a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or possess more and more things that other people have, all irrespective of need. Impurity in the New Testament is, is usually described in terms of sexual sin, this word that is used here for impurity. So Paul is stating rather emphatically that the life of the one who is far from God desires more and more impurity, more and more sensuality, without respect for anything else. Paul could not paint a clearer and darker picture of the life that is far from God and the lifestyle of those who don't walk with God. The anti-hero, if you've uh, studied fiction or literature or film or movies, the, the anti-hero is, is, is a literary device that tells the story of a main character who saves the day, but usually does so for the wrong reasons or while breaking some sort of ethical code or command. The anti-hero, as you can see from these characters in uh, Pop, pop culture, it's a popular motif in literature and films today. James Bond, Han Solo, Tyler Durden, John McClane, and Captain Jack Sparrow. They're all anti-heroes. We like anti-heroes. They, they, they relate to us because we think we can be like them. We think, well, they have flaws, but they can still do great things. Well, maybe I can do great things even with my own flaws, 
Maybe I don't need to work on my flaws and I can still live a rich, meaningful, purposeful life. Maybe I don't need to confess my sin, actually change, and become more like the real hero who has no flaws, Jesus Christ. Maybe I can just hide the gaping hole in my own character and become like one of these anti-heroes because they have what appears to be a very rich, productive, and meaningful life. You can't. In Christ, there's only one hero. And we're either walking with him, confessing our sin, putting to death our old self, and walking in the newness of life, Or we're covering over major issues that God desires to work on us so that we can become more like Him. We are either walking with Him, growing to become more like Him, confessing our sin, or papering over it and being sensitized to our sin, our lusts, our passions, and our pleasures. Now, I, I really don't want to beat you up here. I, I really don't want to use my time that I have here on Sunday morning in front of our entire church to make you feel bad about yourself. That's not the point for why I want to exercise, for the exercise that I wanted, wanted to do here. But I do want to speak the truth. And I do want to highlight what God's word says about our condition and says about the process of sanctification even after we come to Christ. It's no walk in the park. And some of us, even in this room, are right now desensitizing ourselves to God with our lifestyles and the way that we're thinking and the way that we're acting and the way that we're responding. We're allowing for things to hang around in our life that is sensitizing us to sensuality and to impurity, and we're not allowing to be sensitized to God and His Word. We're allowing things to hang around in our lives that whisper to us, walk this way, talk this way. And God, by His Word, and his spirit today and this morning is saying to us collectively, don't do it. Don't follow that way. Don't go in that direction. Don't walk as they walk. So let's get even more practical this morning and ask ourselves the question about how we're walking in three specific categories. First, how are you thinking? What consumes your thought life in your relaxing moments of the day when you're not focused on a specific purpose or task that has in front of you, but you're just relaxing? You're allowing your mind to relax, and it's good and healthy until you're, let your, you're letting your imagination wander. Where does it go? When you're unguarded in your thoughts, where does your imagination take you? If we're meditating on God's word, if we're filling our life with 
the focus and the purpose that God has set before us, even when we allow for our minds to wander, we're relaxing in a way that is honoring to God. We're thinking about the goodness of our our spouse or our children. We're thinking about the the joy and the, the pleasure of what it means to be a child of God, to be called into his church, to be able to serve in a meaningful way. And even when we let our minds relax, we're, we're thankful for the calling and the purpose that God has given to us. When you allow your mind to wander, where does your thought life go? Secondly, what are we sensitized to? I'm using the term sensitivities because I think it's clearer from this text that this is what Paul is driving at rather than just obedience. I didn't want to say, where is your obedience? I wanted to go one step below that and ask, where are your, your sensitivities? What are you sensitized to? We know this because when something happens, alarm bells in our minds and in our emotions and our spirits goes off. That's what we're sensitized to. Our obedience flows from our sensitivities. We follow our sensitivities. We obey whatever we are sensitized to most. And if God's word is what we are sensitive to most, if God and his authority and his love and his care and his provision is what our hearts are sensitized to most, we're going to be walking with him. We're going to be hearing from him. We're going to be listening to him. And we're going to be obeying him. But if what we're sensitized to most is something other than God, we are going to walk out a path of disobedience to God. Are you becoming more and more sensitive to God and to his glory to the degree in which you will take action, or are you becoming more callous and hard-hearted and obstinate to God and to his word? And lastly, both of these things kind of manifest in the relationships that we have. Whose approval are we seeking most? Who's, who is filling your emotional and relational tank? We all have a, a certain level of emotional and relational needs that we desire, that we need to have filled. And it is very easy to fill those emotional and relational needs with relationships that, that are not honoring to God, but are pleasing in the very moment. And it can be a relationship that you have with your computer or with your phone or with a coworker that is just not honoring to God. It might be pleasing in the moment, but it's not honoring to God. God desires to have a close, personal relationship with all of us and desires to put into our lives the things that, that are going to fill our relational tank that are good for us. So how are you walking? How are you thinking? What are you sensitized by? And how are you filling your emotional and relational tank? All of this drives underneath the one question that is rather convicting. Have you really put on Christ? All of this stuff Paul is bringing up to unearth the the question, have you really been taught Christ? And are you really walking in Christ? If our thinking, our sensitivities, and our relationships don't reflect a desire to walk in Christ and walk in the new life in Christ, it's a fair question to ask, have we really put on Christ? Are you really a Christian? 
This is behind verses 20 through 20, verses 20 through 24. He mentions in verse 20, acting like the Gentiles, that's not the way that you were taught. That's not the way that you learned to follow Christ. Verse 20, but that's not the way that you learned Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, are you really walking with him? Are you really walking with him? Well, if you are, then these next four things are going to be manifest in your life. If so, if you're walking in Christ, then you've put off your old self. Paul describes in verse 22, the the old self is the former manner of life that you lived in your thoughts and your sensitivities and in your relationships before you knew Christ. Before you knew Christ, you were just an, you were an, you were an obedient slave to your passions, just doing whatever you desired to do. Whatever thought pattern you thought made the most sense of this life, you were just followed it. That's what it was like before Christ. Have you really put that off? Have you really said, no, that's not me anymore? I have been made new. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. I remember one time in college, I was sitting in, I was sitting in a, a, a lobby area where uh, we were discussing things about life, and, and I was just struggling deeply with a, a, a certain pattern of life, and I was just thinking, man, I'm not sure if I should do this or do this. I'm not sure. And someone just spoke to me very clearly. That pattern of, that pattern of thought, that pattern of action, that pattern of behavior, that's from your old life, Carl. That was old Carl. That was Carl 1.0. You've been made new. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're Carl 2.0. And in that moment, with those words, it just clicked. I don't have to walk in that pattern of, of sin anymore. I don't have to obey those passions any longer. I've been made new in thought and motive, and, and I can put on the new self. I can be renewed in the spirit of my mind, my, my thinking has been renewed through Jesus' teaching. You were taught, Paul says, to put on the new self. The new life that, that God has given to his children is purchased through the cross, and it's made manifest by his spirit at work, giving you a new spirit, new thought life, new sensitivities, and new relationships that you can walk in it. And all of this new self, new walk, being renewed in the spirit of your minds is to return back to your original design. God had an original creative design for every single one of his people. And he built you in a specific way with a specific pattern of life and thought and action that he desires for you to be manifest. And sin just ruined all of that, disordered everything. But Christ comes back or Christ comes into our life, he dies for our sin, takes all of our junk on himself, is raised from the dead three days later, and he gives us his spirit to be renewed back into our original design that God created us for. Look at what it says in verse 24. To put on the new self, and how is that new self described? Created 
after the likeness of God. That's Genesis language. Created after the likeness of God, created in the image of God, to return back to true righteousness. That's a legal declaration of innocence. Innocent before God. And holiness set apart for a unique relationship with God, untainted by sin. Have you ever purchased a product, used it for a day or two, and had it broke? And all of a sudden, it just broke. That product you thought was going to serve a purpose and a design that you were going to use in your home for a specific reason, and it just snapped. Now, what does a bad company do in response to that? Too bad, we got your money, see you later. But a good company has a certain measure of warranty and guarantee on their product and says, it broke, we will return an absolute original to you, or we will fix the one that you have in order to bring it back to your origi- the original intention for which you purchased it. This is what God has done for us in, in and through the redemption in Christ. He's purchased the new self that returns us to our original state of righteousness and holiness that we were designed to have before sin came in and messed everything up. Now, how many of you have, oh, I don't want to put your hand, don't put your hands up yet, but uh, these are two Rolex watches here. Uh, one of them is a fake, and one of them is real. So we'll call this one A, and we'll call this one B. So look at it for the next three seconds while I finish this sentence. So that's A, that's B. One of them is fake, one of them is real. One of them was truly made by Rolex, was designed according to the purpose that Rolex made it. Another one is a false substitute, that uh, Rolex didn't make. So A and B. Now we're going to vote which one you think is the... And everyone's got to participate in this. If I, if I don't see a hand go up on either A or B, uh, I'm going to send Pastor Cassidy after you. Okay, so who thinks that the fake is A? Okay. Okay, that's a, that's, that's a pretty large... It's about 70%. Who says B is the fake? Okay, that's about 70%. 140. <laughs> 140% of you. <laughs> uh, but there, as you can see, there's no clear consensus. It's really hard to spot the fake. You want to know which one it was? <laughs> like, yes, please tell me. <laughs> we'll stop there. A is the, is the real one, B is the fake. Now, if you had both of the watches in front of you, you would be able to tell because of the weight. The, the true Rolex has, has, has a, is a little bit weightier, and the, the fake one is, is lighter with less substantial materials. You, you might be able to tell if you had the two sitting in your hands. You might be able to tell because the, the, the real Rolex uh, doesn't make a loud tick. So it's very soft and subtle uh, tick as, a, as it's going around, whereas the fake Rolex makes a loud, loud tick. But from the distinguishing mark that you can tell in the picture is 
the real Rolex always has a two and a half times magnifying glass on the date because the date needs to be so small within the intricacy of the watch that you can't even see it with the, you can't see it very well, so Rolex goes the extra mile to make sure that it's magnified two and a half times, whereas on the fake, they don't bother with such details. They just want to trick you. Now, there are two ways that you can spot a fake. One, you can try to understand all of the different ways that people are trying to forge, like the failing to uh, magnify the date, the weight, all of those things. You can go through all of the different machinations of fakes that are out there and try to categorize them and list all of the different ways that people, that, or excuse me, that watches are fake and that people make fake watches. Or you can focus on the real. You can study the real one. You can know what the real Rolex watch looks like. You can know the weight and the substance and the, the, ticking, of the, 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 the ticking of the clock and the, the, the way that the date is magnified. You can study and focus on what a true and real company-designed Rolex watch looks like. And you can know it so deeply and so well that any time even a subtle fake and forgery comes around, you will say and be able to spot, no, that's not the real thing. Now, in a message like this, a real question that many of us should be asking, we should be asking ourselves, am I really in Christ? Am I really real? Has God really done his work of grace inside of my life, because as I'm looking inside, I see a bunch of stuff that is very much like the person who is walking far away from God, who is being led by passions and desires that God does not, does not want. And it's easy for us to come to a conclusion, perhaps I'm not even real. And maybe you might set up a pattern and a plan. Here's all of the fake things in my life that I need to get out of, and, and that might be good and healthy and right for you. But the best thing that you can do in response to this message, the best thing you can do in response to God's word when it brings out these things that are within us that cause us to question, am I real or am I fake, is focus on the real. Focus on on Jesus, who has been risen from the dead, who gives new life to his people. Trust Jesus, follow Jesus, walk with Jesus. Yes, and if something brings out inside of you that's fake, that's, that's not good, that, 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 is going, that is leading you in a direction away from God, yes, deal with that. But the primary way in which you can be assured that you are genuinely a Christian, that you're genuinely walking with him, is putting on the new self by focusing your thoughts, your sensitivities, and your relationships fully on him, the real. So as we close down this service here, let's remove the distractions of anything else that's out in, on the outside this morning. And let's take this last song to focus on the real, to focus on the one who died for our sin, who was risen from the dead to genuinely give us new life 
so that we might put on the new self that is being renewed in the spirit of our minds after the knowledge and the image and the likeness of God and the knowledge of our creator. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you. We worship you, we adore you. God, as we hear a convicting message that that really points out a, a, a lot of ways in which we can get caught up in sinful patterns and behaviors, God, I pray that you would reveal yourself as the real one, the one who loves us, the one who died for us, the one who is calling us to holiness and righteousness, to put off the old self, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, to return back to our original created design. Help us, O God, to walk in righteousness and holiness, to put off the old self and all of the junk and baggage that comes along with it and focus on you, the real. God, I pray that Uh, Just the people in this room, as we've heard this message kind of together, God, that you would help us to become holy as you are holy. To not be ashamed of the ways in which we have failed in the past, but to boldly bring those things before you so that we might be renewed and experience the refreshment of your spirit. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.